Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a sunny but cool autumn day here in the capital is Jenny Herkett. Jenny is the owner of Blue Town Remembered, a charity that has restored a music hall and runs the Blue Town Heritage Centre with the aim of promoting and preserving the heritage and culture of the Isle of Sheppey. Uh, Jenny, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. You're welcome. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Now, the big issue um, of this uh, year, of course, has been the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been pretty much in the news um, nonstop since March when the lockdown was initially called. But as all of that has really taken hold in this country, to what extent has it affected you and your organisation? Oh, it greatly. Um, We had to close because we have a theatre and a cinema, so we're one of the first places to close. Um, And also, most of our clients are over 50. So we had to be really careful. Um, And the model that we had to earn our income was by putting on live performances. Um, Of course, that stopped. So we really struggled. We didn't know where we were going to go. Uh, at, the, at the beginning of the uh, the lockdown, mm. but luckily enough, um, I um, managed to pull in. I just applied for all sorts of grants. It wasn't something that we normally did because we pride, pride ourselves in actually earning our, our own income. But um, was very fortunate. And Historic England was super. So the local council, museums, people, and lots of other little charities, plus local people as well. So that's re- that's allowed us to keep going and reopen. Mm. Well, like I say, um, of course, you are an organisation that prides yourself on bringing your own income in. But during a time like this, where those income streams are so heavily restricted, needs must, of course. Um, mm. And even as we're starting to um, sort of maybe come out of lockdown earlier in the year, we now, of course, are starting to go backwards a little bit as we head into the winter. Is there some way forward with um, sort of vet indoor venues starting to reopen with reduced capacities now that you can see for some of your live performances to return? Or is it a little bit more complicated? Than that. It's a bit more complicated because we're a small theatre. So mm. by the time you've restricted the numbers, I mean, we were built as a musical, so it, it's a small venue. Um, and one of the pluses for us is the intimacy, which of course doesn't really work when you've got mm. live performances. We are moving to giving uh, history talks. Um, so it, it's one to one. Entertainment, but in a different mm. format. We're using the um, the community cinema, um, bringing in streamings. We just had the Andre Rue streaming stuff like that. So we're, we're trying to change what we can do. We've been very fortunate that most of our um, visitors have moved over for next year. So we've got a very loyal following, mm. in, including coach companies, because um, they've all been very understanding. But we're looking at how we can actually change things and make it um, a secure, comfortable place that people can come to, even in reduced numbers on their coaches. So we're looking to the future and trying to build on on that model as well. Mm. 
And that adaptability is going to be so, so important because even, fingers crossed, when we do hopefully have a working vaccine in place and maybe in one or two years' time, the virus itself is no longer an issue as an immediate danger, just because of the sort of widespread anxiety that this whole pandemic is likely to have caused. It's going to take some time for consumer confidence to return, people being comfortable going back into venues with quite a few other people there. So this could be the way of things for quite some time, even when we do eventually leave COVID behind and you've got to make sure you're ready for that. Yeah, and um, we've actually taken a big gamble by actually going with a marketing company and also working with Visit Kent. Um, we've been chosen as one of their uh, companies that they've, they've got some funding through Interreg to try and look at new markets in Europe and, and locally. Although we're a small small charity, we sort of punch above our weight, really. Um, and um, so that's what we're looking at, really, is setting the groundwork now so that we can actually take advantage next year. And that sometimes is what you have to do. You have to be proactive rather than reactive. And even though, of course, there is still so much uncertainty out there, you've got to still plan for every eventuality and be ready to seize upon the opportunities that will be there as a result of this. Um, yeah, and um, we've changed in lockdown uh, to be honest, I just sat in the building and just looked at it all and thinking, oh, the 11 years of work, what are we going to do? And then thought, hang on a minute, let's move all the heritage to the middle floor and make the ground floor um, just for entertainment so we could have a much larger tea room. We can cope with coaches now on the ground floor. So it's we've actually remodeled the whole building, but at zero cost. Exactly right. And um, the charity itself has already made some incredible strides under your own leadership uh, Jen you have 20,000 visitors coming onto the Isle of Sheppey um, over the year yeah. 2019 just shows just uh, the progress that um, it's made um, and during this period of time albeit of course it's been a time of crisis and things have dropped off um, because they do say that you do learn more when you're in a time of adversity than perhaps when things are going well can you say that that rings true in this instance and there is something that you have learned in your leadership capacity as a result of this experience yeah i've learned that you can only go so far on your own you really need to work with other people you need to um work with experts as well but also it's it's about being kind mm. um Kind to yourselves, but also kind to your visitors and kind to the people that you work with, because all that kindness has actually now been repaid to us in bucket loads. Um, the little gestures that people have given, they really value coming to us, and you'll get, you know, a hundred pound put through the door. So it, it's it's all of those things. If you've been good to your community, your community will support you in, in hard times. I think that's very, very true. I think you essentially do see that you reap the rewards later down the line for what you do um, now and being kind, of course, and giving is a huge, huge part of that. And we have seen a lot of that during this time. We've seen, um, of course, a lot of national unity during the uh, the COVID-19 period, particularly with everybody rallying around the NHS in the early weeks and months of the pandemic. And that is a spirit that we can really harness as leaders and take forward from here, can't we? Yeah, I mean, and you've got to realize you can't do it on your own and you do need other people's ideas. Um, and, and as I say, we've got a really good, strong team that's been with me for, for years. And also talking to your customers. We 
started doing um, a regular MailChimp newsletter to, we have a friend scheme. We have over 500 friends at the center and also the regular coach companies and that just to keep them in touch with what we've been, been up to. And that's really gone down well. And when we've sort of run out of paint or energy or whatever, wood or whatever, somehow or other it's turned up. So it's about keeping in contact with people. Communication has been key. Communication is absolutely massive with regards to uh, leadership. Uh, that's absolutely right. And it's proven no more important uh, na- than now where everybody is having to, in many cases, do things from a distance, including lead by doing it through remote technological means where people cannot physically come together. And it's just shown that we have taken that human to human contact very much for granted. And we've had to adapt very quickly to doing everything in a remote way. And as well as technology has worked for us during this time, sometimes it's just not quite the same as actually being face to face with people and so it's a lot to consider going forward isn't it when we're talking about what this might do to our working practices yeah with us as i say we've had to change the physical aspect of the building to make it safe for people to come in um and at the moment we know that's not cost effective but we do know that for next year we will reap the benefits because the coach companies coming in now and, and having a look at what we've done feel secure that they can bring in people socially distanced and they can have the building to themselves. So we're building in models to make people feel safe, secure and keeping fingers crossed as well. And thinking of the future, because I would like to talk about that just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Jenny, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time. Um, We know that for the most part of this next year, we are going to have to keep living under the new normal and get to grips with the various restrictions that may come in at different points in time. Um, But as we sort of move through into the spring and hopefully, God willing, fingers crossed, we do have a working vaccine at some point by then. um, And we can maybe start to look at leaving the COVID-19 situation behind and focusing on the longer term future what sort of challenges are you envisioning on the horizon for yourselves both through the winter and beyond and indeed where do you see yourselves being this time in 12 months wow that's a lot there um maybe i'll start with the end and work backwards where do we see ourselves within 12 months we're actually looking very positively towards the future if the model that we're working on at the moment to bring in extra coach companies on quiet days Um, works, we will then be able to actually move from being voluntary run to having some paid staff and hopefully apprentices in there. That's where we're looking at. So it it is a big vision that we're taking on here. Working backwards from that, we've got to make sure that we are building on technology. We're using, I'm not very good at technology and social media and all of that. So it's a steep learning curve and having to bring people in changing our booking system so it's um, linking in with things like Visit Kenton and other other organisations. So all these baby steps to build a strong foundation to move forward. Also looking at the model that we have for entertainment. Um, Live entertainment is what this building was built for, but we've actually found by analysing everything that afternoon shows are more profitable for us than evening ones. So better for us, we save electricity. <laughs> so all these little things, it's it's a lot of analysis, mm. looking at your business, 
rethinking and positioning yourself with partners. Uh, nobody really knows where the Isle of Sheppey is. Trying to bring coach parties here is really difficult. So it's a great big step change to actually get people to come to the Isle of Sheppey. And to that end, you do need other people to help you. So it's all of these. It's thinking big, getting all your data right, putting in the foundations, and keeping your fingers crossed. So much of this during um, a time of crisis is about going back to basics. I've had so many guests on the show, Jenny, who've agreed with that, who've all said it's like taking their first steps in business again, going back to mm. basics, overhauling things, trying to sort of revolutionise all of their income streams in some cases. So you're certainly not alone in that boat. And that mm. certainly is um, the message that we're trying to portray here. Everybody is in, very much in this together. We're all leaders trying to chart a course through this. And I actually think just given the ambition of your plans that through the uncertainty and how enlightening it's been having you join us today that it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on our program just to see how some of those plans are starting to come along yeah you're welcome I'd certainly hope that there'd be some positive news to share at that point as well, Jenny. It's fantastic, some of the work that you're getting involved with at the moment. And um, most importantly, until we do get to touch base again in future, hopefully, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with this one yet. Okay, and the same to you. I'd also like to reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Please do continue to be sensible, stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Jenny Herkett onto today's programme, owner of Blue Town Remembered. Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, serving as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years and going on to serve in several senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership. Lord Blunkett was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time 
and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. 
including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. 
those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chivying people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months 
when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond, we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh, where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision one of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world except for the very poor has been the distribution of food a lot of it on computerized uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down we'd be in real trouble so i think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well so have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about 
proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation, and that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget, and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? 
I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. 
Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.